Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. My name is George. I'm one of the pastors here at the Mount, and we get to start our Advent in Exodus with Exodus 2, 1 through 10. And so I'd invite you to find that passage. It should be up here behind me, I think, maybe? No? Yeah. Okay. Excellent. It says, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that... In this passage, we see um, your character, Um, a God who is with us, Father, a God who loves us, who sent his son for us, and a God who has made every guarantee to make good on his promise. So we pray you would open this word to us, uh, that you would help me to speak. God, that you would be glorified um, in all that's said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. So because God is present with his people, compassionate towards us, and sovereign over everything, we have every reason for confidence, for hope that God will deliver on all his promises. So brothers, sisters, friends, be reconciled to God. That's, that's what we ask. Be reconciled. Know God's love. Put aside fear and follow Jesus. He's the one and only Son, the only Lord and refuge for the soul. I say again, brothers and sisters, live as true siblings, one with the other, with careful watching of one another to rescue to encourage, to push on one another. 
with patient, enduring faith, wait the coming of the only Savior, Jesus, to usher in his glorious kingdom. And that's the sermon. We're done. We can make it easy. No, the last few months, we have spent looking at the life of Abraham. We were doing that in coordination with, with Galatians. Um, but if we keep on, we, we find that the book of Genesis quickly moves to another child, and that child is Joseph. Um, it's kind of hated by his brothers, kind of put down by them. They attempt to kill him. He gets sold off into slavery. He gets left in prison when he should have been rescued from it. He gets eventually sent into a different kind of service, accused of trying to take advantage of another man's wife. And through it all, God is leading him further and further to be the deliverer of his people, to be the deliverer that God has set aside for just that moment, just that place in time for the people of Israel. And he says, sort of as a testimony at the end in Genesis 50, you meant, and this is to his brothers, you meant evil against me, these ones who had sold him into slavery instead of killing him. You meant evil against me, but God intended it for good. The whole time, God intended it for good, for the rescue and deliverance of his people. So just as Joseph looked forward to the future with hope because he knew God's presence, it guided him, it gave him strength. He knew God's compassionate care even in the midst of all of those trials. And he knew that God was sovereign over it. He could make good out of what other men would see just depression and anxiety from. He could trust. He could walk in faith. God would be faithful to his promises. He promised things to Abraham. He promised things to Isaac. He had promised things to Jacob. And so amidst all of life's improbability and unpredictability, its trials and its blessings, he could look to God for deliverance. And so that story then leads right into our story. We find ourselves in Egypt. Nobody remembers Joseph anymore. And the king is getting increasingly concerned about the people of Israel, this people who is quite apparently being blessed by God. And so that is where we are. Let's meet God in the passage today. It says, so now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And so maybe we just need a little bit of a recap. Um, Levi is the third son of Jacob. Um, we had Reuben, who basically did some bad things with his father's wife, concubine. I'm going to get it mixed up. But anyway, Jacob sort of says, there's not much happening for you. You're, you're, you're not really um, living according to the way I wanted you and I hoped that you would. And then he follows up with Simeon and Levi. And it's a rather odd story. Genesis 34, if you want to look back there later, um, basically a group of people take advantage of one of his sisters. And rather than handle it in a godly way, they deceive, they lie, and they convince people to become circumcised, and in their weakened state, they kill them, they rob them, instead of inviting them into a people as circumcision was meant to sort of indicate of being part of God's people. Instead, they kill them. 
And for this, in Genesis 49, Jacob curses Simeon and Levi, the two brothers who engaged in this. And specifically with Levi, we see this. It's a blessing. He says, I'm going to scatter you among the tribes. But we can very much see it as a curse. It comes across as a punishment that they're going to be not quite able to inherit the land like the rest of the children, but the rest of the brothers um, do. But that, that, that curse turns into a blessing. This house of Levi is going to be the house from which you have all the spiritual instruction coming. It's the house of where all the priests are coming from. And so right from the beginning in this story, we see it set up that Moses has parents either side who are the Levites. The law hasn't come yet. It hasn't been said that the Levites are going to be the people who, through whom the priesthood is going to come, but Moses is already prepared as God works. Moses is prepared to take on that role of a lawgiver and a spiritual teacher, a prophet for God. And in the normal course of events, they have a child, Moses. He's unnamed so far in this story, but certainly as Israel would read this text, they knew who it was. They could see and anticipate the story, seeing that this was Moses. And Moses wasn't the first child. Um, Moses' mother had um, Miriam, who was the eldest girl, probably in her teens, maybe a little bit younger at this point, and Aaron, who's three years older, a brother. And so it, it's interesting, if you watch the text move, it goes very, very quickly to pointing out Moses. Just giving us the details we need, but unnamed. Now, Exodus 1 is detailed the growing oppression and hatred. So Egypt is sort of host to Israel, and Israel has been there nearly 400 years at this point. And Egypt is growing increasingly concerned that they are growing so fruitfully. Um, if you know anything about Egyptian history, the rulers there are sort of always a little bit like interlopers. They're not native necessarily. And so they're worried of any time a group of people becomes dominant, that they're going to lose their power. And so the pharaoh there is quite concerned by, by, by Hebrews' um, success, their fruitfulness, God's blessing upon them. And so he has actually put them in bondage to try to wear them out, to depress them, to put anxiety on them, um, and hopefully in the end to stop them from being so fruitful. And it doesn't work. Instead, he has to resort to a command to have them killed in private. As they're giving birth, kill them. Don't let anybody know about it. Have them killed. Hoping again to stop their fruitfulness. That doesn't work either. And so he gives a public edict before this passage. Every male Hebrew child born, cast them into the Nile. And that kind of sets the groundwork for this story. And why she has to hide him for three months. For three months, you can kind of hide a baby. They still cry, but they're small. The cry only goes so far. Once you get up past that three-month point, it becomes increasingly difficult to keep that baby hidden. And so... His mother, being creative, takes a basket, and we quickly run over that. It's a, it's a basket, but the, the word that they use is the word for an ark. And so the readers are going to see exactly what this is. This is the word for Noah's ark. So Noah saving, God saving 
humanity through the flood, through the water, are all of a sudden reminded, here's God delivering again through an ark. Small one, a mini one, but nevertheless, this is how God is going to redeem and deliver his people. It kind of cues us into what's happening because there's no flashiness here. You know, with, with Jesus' birth, you have angels, you have shepherds, you have all this praise going on. Moses, you have a baby born and hidden for three months, lest somebody find out and he be cast into the Nile. So she takes a basket, she waterproofs it, and she puts the baby in it and puts it in the marsh. Um, now, the natural question is, what does Moses' mother hope is going to happen here? Does she think that somebody's going to find the baby, somebody who's better able to care for it than she is? She's still in a Hebrew area of, of Egypt. It's unlikely that anybody who's going to find it is not going to be Hebrew. Or worse, if they do find it, that they're going to be soldiers making a regular raid or run to try to find Hebrew babies. Or maybe he's recounting the story he heard from his adoptive mom. We haven't quite hit the story yet. The Pharaoh's daughter, who wouldn't have maybe emphasized so much the regular care, the regular guarding and watching of his sister. Whatever the story doesn't really tell us, it leaves it open. Um, what it does do instead is focus on exactly how God delivers, exactly what he does to make it happen. He's not concern, so concerned, actually, with the actions of the mother and the daughter. He's more concerned with what God is doing to prepare salvation, to provide a deliverer for the people. Now, with that, the name of the section, if you've been in the outline, is something of God present. And you may be thinking, God doesn't seem very present at this point. He's not being brought up. He's not being mentioned. Um, but if we look at it, if we take the whole passage together, we see a bookend of names. We see Levi at the start, and we see Moses at the end. In between, there are no names. And Moses is trying to kind of push the situation, drawing attention away from named actors to God who is behind the scenes, who's beyond the story, God who will reveal himself in the very next chapter by flame of fire and a burning but not consumed bush. So what we have is Moses helping Israel grapple with who God is. He's a God who's not an idol. He's not something they can have a visible, tangible thing for. He's everywhere. He's every when. He's not got boundaries. He can't be contained, really. He's utterly powerful and above his creation. Uh, but the God Moses knows, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is a God that can be known. He's a God who reveals himself, a God who responds to people's suffering. He's a God who not only sees the plight of his people, but he's moved to actually act on their behalf just as he acts in Christ on our behalf. Not because he has to, but because he's chosen to, because he loves to do so. And so what we're talking about is really the distinction between transcendence and imminence. There's our big words for the day. It's transcendent, to be holy, to be separate, to be other. We probably use two different things that may be more familiar. We have like omnipresence, that God is everywhere. But really, that doesn't really do it justice because God is not just everywhere. 
he's truly transcendent. He created space. He's not contained in it. He's not just everywhere. He is beyond everywhere. He doesn't need it to exist. He simply is. And then on top of that, he's, we might talk about omni, this is going to be bad, omnitemporality, being every when. I mean, he's the creator before anything was. He's the creator before time ticked out life for us. He sustains and controls nature. He progresses the seasons. They don't do that without him in control. And he will be the almighty God when it is all done. So transcendent. If you can imagine something that big, you're better than I. We do have an example of this. Islam actually treats God as transcendent, but not near. He's not imminent. He's just transcendent. He's so huge, he's so immense and outside of our experience that he can maybe reveal himself, maybe through a prophet or dream or something, but he doesn't interact necessarily. You can pray to him, but there's no guarantee he's going to act on your behalf. All of a sudden, you get into this situation where it's really about doing things to hopefully please this God who is so above you. The presence of sin prohibits this kind of a God from actually dealing with mankind in their deepest need. But our God, sin draws out his compassion. Okay. So moving from transcendence to imminence, we might talk about just the here and the now. We talk about here, God dwelling, as we sang, with, with us, Emmanuel um, of Isaiah 7, or Moses telling after the debacle um, with the golden calf, telling God that if you're, going to if, if you're not going to go with us, you might as just well not take us to the promised land. You have to go with us or we simply can't be your people. Now, he is the God of the living. Jesus, in a response to religious leaders, says that he is the God of the living. He's not a God of just dead men and in the past. He's a God of those alive now. He's a God of living souls who forever are before him. So he's a God here and now. And if we want to look for an example, this is a bad example, but we might think of the Greek and Roman gods. They're powerful, but they're really part of the created order. They're not above it. They're not outside of it. They have all the character of being messed up by the same broken creation. Their will is not absolute. So it's a bad example, but I'm sure you can figure out one for yourself, of seeing this created order as God itself and not seeing it as transcendent. And we likely gravitate naturally one way or the other. We focus on God being really, really near but lose some of that transcendence or we focus on God being so transcendent that he can't be near to us. Our sin must be too much. And the fact is the God of Scripture, the God we worship is both. And maybe we don't do that enough. Maybe we think it flippant, but we really do need to think about it. We have a God who is beyond space and time going personally with a people to fulfill promises made to a man who is a wisp of a breath, like a fading flower or like grass that is mown down in other seasons of the year. Luckily, not now. A God who has no body as we know it, yet cares about us, who invented food, marriage, 
work, rest. He doesn't need any of those things. God the Son who lived eternally and lives eternally, unchanging, stooping to be born, to live among his people, enduring rejection, enduring want, something God simply wouldn't have known otherwise. Dying in our place for sin, he did not commit. Or God the Spirit, one with the Father, hovering over the waters of creation, yet dwelling in every believer, sealing him against a coming promise? I mean, how do we reconcile these things and not just tremble in God's presence? So Moses narrates his birth for Israel and for us so that they might see this very thing. A transcendent God can't be seen, can't be pictured, acting on their behalf. So I say again, put your hope this morning in this God. Morning by morning, encourage one another. It it gets hard, I know, when Pharaoh's threats are looming large, when work is hard, when that test is coming, when everything seems arrayed against good order, goodness, righteousness, and justice. But don't fear, because your God is near. He's a God who sees. He's a God who provides. And because he is present, he can do that. And what Moses needs right now in his mini-ark is protection. What the parents need is peace, rescue from an anxious watchfulness, wondering what's going to happen. And what Israel needs and is looking for is a deliverer who will rescue us from this bondage. And that leads us to the second item, the second outline point, is hope's design, a a God who is compassionate. And the text says, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, for our story here, we see that the daughter of Pharaoh is the one who finds this baby. Probably the last person that Moses' mother thought was going to be browsing this area of the marsh and come across her child. And what happens is not moral outrage. This is sort of the the economics of our world is moral outrage. I'm independent. I see bad things. I call them out. It's all up to me. And I, That's not what drives this. This is pity. And we don't like the word, I don't think. We might more like compassion, but that's what we see here is compassion drawing the daughter of Pharaoh to look at this baby and do something on his behalf. Probably no one else could have put that child in a position of safety and security it needed. And God knew that. And so for just a moment, let's step back with me and consider how we get here in this kind of place over and over again. Um, If you remember in the book of Daniel, you have Daniel and his friends asked to tell a dream, tell what it means. And he does it. Not by his own skillfulness or wisdom, but by God's wisdom. 
And rather than earn him respect, it earns him hatred. And that hatred leads to palace intrigue, an attempt to kill Daniel, an attempt to kill Daniel's friends. Or similarly, we have Herod in Matthew 2. He fears that his kingdom is going to be taken from him if a king that he keeps on hearing about comes from the Jews. And it escalates into lying and to mass slaughter of the children in Bethlehem, all an attempt to rid a potential rival. And the same thing here is with Pharaoh. We already talked about it, but that increasing bondage for Israel because they're fruitful causes Pharaoh to seek to kill the Hebrews, which fails, leading to the public decree, a public enraged, kill them. Don't let them live. All of that built up sin, leading to wickedness, leading to evil, it's undone by a woman's compassion. But again, the names kind of draw us to, to, to look past. This isn't a story about Pharaoh's daughter. It's a, Pharaoh, it's a story about God acting, about God's compassion and provision and care. God sees his people in their oppression, and he's going to respond. And he does it globally, and he does it individually. Individually, he works directly with Moses. He works directly with Jochebed, who hasn't been mentioned. That's Moses' mother. He's working through Amram, Moses' father. He's working through Miriam, his sister. He's working through Aaron, his brother. And globally, all of this is to save Israel, the Hebrews, as a nation. So in this passage, something as simple as uniting a man and wife, giving birth to a child, is God showing compassion on people. And we're not meant to stop there. Um, even Moses teaches that that delivery they need is not just from oppression to Egypt. Rather, God sees his people in their sin and responds. And for that, we jump fast forward. Go to John 3, 16 through 17. For this is the way God loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The God who promised a seed to crush the serpent, who promised Abraham offspring, who rescues Moses from the marsh, sends his very own son pleading with us, be reconciled to God. Know what I have done for you. So we see that Moses is a deliverer, but he is not the deliverer. God loves in this way that in our pitiful state, us crying out like baby Moses from the basket it brings God's compassion running. Like the prodigal's father, he runs toward the repentant son. That is exactly how God sees us in our sin. He comes running with compassion. Richard Sibbs writes this. This was actually from my devotional this morning, but I thought it perfectly said what needed to be said. It said, the great God of heaven and earth begs our love, that we would care for our own souls and be reconciled to him. 
It is more fit that we should beg of Him, but God stoops in the ministry of the gospel. What hope do we have apart from Christ? None. Deliverance comes from only one place. That's what Moses writes this to let them know. The only place that salvation, deliverance for the people comes from is God alone. And so as we look at Advent, we, re- we remember that Jesus came, but we also reflect that he is returning again. He's coming, and we look to that with hope. That, that coming comes with salvation or judgment. And so the question I put before you is, how are you waiting? Are you fearful of coming judgment? Are you trapped in a cycle of performance? I mean, we've been dealing with it in Galatians, um, just kind of the difference between law and grace, between gospel and rule keeping. But how are you waiting? Are you waiting out of this attempt to do it on your own? Or have you sort of actually drifted more to apathy, a lack of hope that anything can be different? The passage we read this morning in Word and Prayer kind of speaks to this and this idea that we are, as believers, given spiritual armor, but we can so easily live as if there is no enemy and as if there is no God empowering us. Or, this is the hope, are you bold and courageous knowing that Jesus died in your place? able to conform you to be like him, an adopted brother or sister of the Lord, a precious son or daughter of his perfect father. So friend, do you know Jesus? Because if not, I'd I'd love to sit down with you after and talk to you about what Jesus has done. Before we go any further, though, maybe we need to revisit that idea of global interaction it's too, too quick for us just to dwell on the fact that God is saving Israel. As we see this pity of an Egyptian woman, it should remind us that we're neither at the end of the story nor at the beginning. God is on mission already, and that mission is more than just the birth of Israel. It's more than just their freedom from slavery. It actually has our redemption all wrapped up in it as he accomplishes his purposes in ways that we would never imagine. This promise to Abraham was a blessing to all nations, and the promise continues through this baby. God knew exactly what he needed to do to rescue this baby hidden in the rushes. And so our hope is based on a God who is present and knowable, a God both holy and near, And hope flows from a pattern of God's compassion and love. That's what we've established. So now let's turn to the final verses and consider how secure our hope can be. In 2, 7 through 10, it reads, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Yeah, I'm just waiting around for that to happen. Yep, I'm there. We'll make sure that the right person gets with the right child. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away, 
and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, he's probably about three years old, so it's about three years, most likely. It's typical weaning. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. We already kind of hinted at it, but the daughter of the enemy is the best protection possible for this little infant. It's the exact thing that Pharaoh feared, but exactly what God was able to accomplish. Not only is it just amazing that it would be the daughter of Pharaoh, but Jacobet is even paid to care for her own child. We talk about later in the Exodus the spoiling of the Egyptians as they try to send them out of Egypt, get them to stop the plagues. They are basically giving them stuff. Here, here, take this tiara, take this piece of jewelry, take this, and it's called the spoiling of Egypt. This is sort of the precursor to that. As Jacobet is, is paid to raise up the very deliverer who will ruin Pharaoh's aspirations. And not only that, Moses is going to be trained by the Egyptians to overcome the Egyptians. They're going to train him in public speech and math and science, and all the things he might need to know to interact with the Egyptians on an equal footing. So he's not just some dominated Hebrew who's unprepared. God is doing everything he can to set up the situation to where Israel will be redeemed, will be rescued. Ultimately, the birth and adoption of Moses are acts of grace by the sovereign creator of the universe. And so, lest as we talk about the law and we talk about grace, we sort of treat Moses as this, oh, he just gave us the law, we can ignore him. Moses is just as much dependent on the grace of God. And as he speaks to the people of Israel, he's trying to get them to understand this gracious God. If we return to the bookends, um, we see that God's preparation in the parentage of Moses, they're both Levites. They both match the role Moses is going to play, this role of prophet, this role of priest, this role of spiritual instruction and intercession for his people. God is preparing in advance to make sure that it's, there's no question. Is Moses the right people, person to rule us? Well, he's not really a Levite. He just kind of was on the scene before God gave, no, 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 God says, I've already taken care of that. There will be no reason to question Moses' authority. Even as Moses writes, you see this repeated phrase in Genesis, up until this point in Exodus, she became pregnant and gave birth. In all of Moses' writings, it happened 16 times. This is the 16th. This is the last. He keeps on having these notable women give birth to the next son, and he's the last. Moses is setting it up to be very, very clear. He sees and knows what God is doing, setting him up, to redeem and deliver the people at this point. Again, he's not the, the ultimate. And so even Moses looks forward to the future and says, there's one who's going to come after me. Listen to him. And that one is Jesus. Maybe a last final thing if we look at a name. That last verse says, she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. There's all this mixing up. So the word in Hebrew is something like to draw out. 
but more like he drew out. And then there's a word in Egyptian that's more like born to the God of. So he, these get slammed together where he can live in both of these spaces, Egyptian and Hebrew, and have both of these heritages. But even then, there's a looking back, and then there's a looking forward. Because the name Best is a pun. We see that you know, God is not only rescuing Moses, but he's rescuing his people. He's going to be the one drawing them out of Egypt. Because God is drawing them out. God has been driving the story forward every step of the way. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and ultimately Jesus. Jesus is it. There won't be another redeemer. Jesus is God's final word on the matter. It's God himself saying, this is what I'm willing to do to rescue my people. Now, something that we didn't really spend a lot of time on, there are many godly women in this story. And I want to give a shout out, a praise, all of them. They do so many wonderful things. And we are so blessed by godly women in this church and in so many churches. But can we reinforce that the point of the story is not how to be a godly mother or wife or daughter. The attention is consistently on the son who God has set aside to be the deliverer. It's on God himself who is for his people, present and compassionate and sovereign. It, Moses paints a picture of hope where life is lived out with the knowledge that God is intimately involved with all of life's twists and turns. It doesn't have to be some big, huge, important thing. They don't have to be elected president. It can be simply marrying having children, caring for them faithfully. All of it works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's a life lived knowing that God intends for all the evil that we see to ultimately result in glory for him and our salvation. The, the focus today, of course, in our Advent look has been on hope, but we need to remember that faith and hope are sort of this two side of a coin. Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, uh, the conviction of things not seen. That same chapter tells us that faith allowed Moses' parents to defy the king's edict, Pharaoh's command to cast all the babies into the Nile, male babies, without fear. And so the last question is, are you afraid? There's a lot of that going around, and the world is full up with fear-making. It's, it's a mess. Some of it's our own mess. But this short episode asks us where our hope lies. So brother, sister, place your entire rest on Christ. All your burdens, he knows them. And he invites you to take his yoke. And there alone is salvation, hope, and joy in no one else. Will you pray with me? Father, would you make your word effective? God, we thank you that 
you knew exactly what we need. You knew our sin. You knew our rebellion. Yet you still chose to make us in your image. You still chose to save us. We didn't have to. So, Father, we, we worship you. We ask you to help us to, to follow you, to grow closer to you, to love one another well. God, to trust you with our tomorrows, everyone. In Jesus' name, amen.